It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. The Himalayas are a massive mountain range in Central Asia that inspires awe and respect for anyone who visits. Humans have been living in their shadow for centuries, and the region is rich in culture and history. Our guest today, Tom Pritzker, chairman of Hyatt Hotels and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, is remarkably also an expert on the history and culture of the Western Himalayas. Today we explore with Tom the remarkable work he's done and continues to do in the remote areas of the Himalayas to discover and expose the traditions and heritage of this region. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Culligan Water. Culligan's drinking water systems deliver the superior filtration and refreshing hydration you need to fuel your high-performance lifestyle. Learn more at Culligan.com. We caught up with Tom in between his many activities at his office in Chicago. All right, Tom Pritzker, thanks for being a guest on the Adrenaline Zone. You are the chairman of the Pritzker Organization of Hyatt Hotels and the Center for Strategic and International Studies, among a whole host of other activities. So you're incredibly busy, but you're also a recognized archaeological expert on a particular section of the Western Himalayas and on Tibetan art and culture. So I have to ask you, when did you get interested in archaeology as a subject and why that particular region? Uh, Sandy and Sandra, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. What I'd warn you is that this really isn't a thread about archaeology. This is a bit more like a tapestry because it leads us into a whole variety of adventures, of discovery, of scholarship. It even it even bleeds into my business life. And so just a fair warning that we may go to a number of different places. That's what we like. What I'd say is the beginning of it that I can recall was I had a map of the world on my uh, wall as a little kid, as long as I can remember. I remember in seventh or eighth grade tracing for my best friend, we stayed overnight, where I wanted to go one day on an adventure. And it was basically kind of the underbelly of China and Tibet, running from Pakistan all the way through Burma and Vietnam and that sort of thing. And that always stuck with me because of the map. I would say a couple of themes to it. One is maps were always fascinating to me. I, I just loved maps for whatever reason. And the other was risk. Now, you guys had risk associated with your jobs. It came with the job that each of you had. I didn't have that, but I saw managed risk as a way to find white spaces. People generally are risk averse. It means if you can take managed risk, you can find spaces that others haven't been in. And so as I think about it, I think those two things were certainly an important part of uh, how I grew up and how I began thinking about this. But why exactly the Himalayas? There's lots of really interesting places all over the world. And, and the Himalayas are actually a massive range as well. And it, seems, it sounds like you focus kind of on the Tibetan area. 
I've always loved the mountains. And so, of course, the Himalayas are the great mountains in the world. But I also was really interested in having a cultural adventure. So if I sort of dive in, I would say it didn't start with archaeology. It really started with I wanted a cultural adventure that nobody or very few people had ever done or experienced. So Margot and I, my wife and I in 1978, go to Kathmandu and I'd been there before. And we basically were in search of something that was highly unusual. We referred to as cultural adventure. We spent three months learning about the Himalayas and history and language and that sort of thing. And then we set off for a remarkable adventure. We flew to uh, Western Nepal, got out of the airplane, walked north over the Himalayas, and then we walked for 500 miles along the northern slopes of the Himalayas. So this is Trans-Himalaya. This is literally on the northern side of the Himalaya, sort of sandwiched in between the Tibetan border and the Himalayas. And we lit its Tibetan community and we lived with the Tibetans for nearly more than two months. And this was all walking, no communication, lots of adventure, lots of discovery. We think we were in the first 10 outsiders to ever penetrate this area. And so that opened up a whole window into a world that was just very, very different. Both it was rugged, it was high altitude, we probably crossed 10 passes over 16,000 feet. It was Buddhist, so there was deep, interesting learnings there. And that, that was the adventure that sort of set us on what became a life's journey. Wow, that sounds spectacular. That really does. You know, that region is is uh, never having been there. I know it's spectacular in terms of terrain, in terms of culture, in terms of art and the like. But it's also can be at least a fairly politically turbulent region. H- have you seen that change as it impacted over the last you know 40 years or so that you've done this? Uh, has that and overlaid on anything or, or have you managed to escape most of that political turbulence? In the Buddhist and Hindu part of the Himalayas, yes, there can be some political sensitivities, but usually we're able to navigate that with what I would call reasonable risk, very well-managed risk. And in China, we're with the military, we're with the PLA because we're right on the border. So they're watching every move we make. In India, similarly, In Nepal, we're on our own, and so sometimes we have to navigate that a bit. You know, I think you could have had a a career as a diplomat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So was there a theme to your wonder? You're trying to trace the Silk Road, or or were you just sort of looking in different pieces randomly? So we had that great adventure in Dolpo in Nepal. That was in 78. And then in 84... We were allowed to visit a very restricted, militarily restricted area of uh, India, where the Indians and the Chinese, we've seen them fighting more recently. But it was on the Indian side, and we went up with the military. And we went into this phenomenal monastery. So think of wall paintings that are exquisite, 
color, beautiful, fantastic Buddhist paintings. And there's an inscription. And the nice thing about Tibetan is if you can read it today, you can read what they were writing in the 11th century. And the inscription described a king called Yeshiyod and his chief priest, a guy called Rinchen Zanpo, and that they had brought Buddhism to Tibet. Mm -hmm. So we did that. When we got home, we got a hold of Rinchen Zanpo's biography. And basically, he was a seminal figure in the 11th century. And I'll tell the story in a minute. But basically, we circled every place name in that biography, and that became our map. We created a map. That became what we did for the next 40 years was trying to find every name, every place that was named in Rinchen Sankpo's biography in the hope that we might find inscriptions or treasures or libraries that would give us more insights into that history. Okay. Amazing. So that's sort of what led to this journey. So along that journey, you've, you've obviously run ac across some amazing art, uh, sculpture, paintings. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what they indicate about this, the civilization from which they evolved and the like? Yeah. So let me give brief history. So Rinchen Zankbo's dates are 958 to 1055. And he was this brilliant kid who was sent by the king of West Tibet into India to master Sanskrit and Buddhism. So he had to master Buddhism in a different language. He was there for 17 years and he brought back artists, teachers, books. He basically, he and this king imported Buddhism uh, from India into Tibet. And it's the basis of today's Tibetan Buddhism. So we have this biography. And when we travel, we carry a library with us and most of our travels on foot. So we're in on the Tibetan side of the border, the Chinese side, and they're in an area that in that case, no Westerners have been to. And we go to this monastery uh, to give you a sense to get to the place we really want to be. You drive for 70 hours in an SUV dead reckoning, no, no roads. And then you get out and you walk for four or five hours and then you're where we really want to be. So we go into this monastery. It's about a three or four hour walk from where our camp is. And it's got amazing bronzes, really deeply remarkable, probably the most important collection that I've seen in the Himalayas. And we take our photos and one of them is very large and the Tibetans dress their bronzes. So you can see the face, but you can't see most of the body. So we walk back the three hours to our campsite and I'm lying in our, our sleeping bags with Margot in a tent and I pop up. It's like nine o'clock at night, like the cartoon of the person with the light bulb going on over his head. And I said, that bronze we saw is the bronze that Rinchen Sankbo brought back from Kashmir for his father. And we stop, we break out the library, we reread the story. And the story was he had, his father had died. He went to Kashmir. He had a, had a bronze made of a, of a bodhisattva. 
and brought it back and it fell off the cart at a certain bridge and broke the ring finger on his right hand. So I go to our Chinese colleague and I say, I got to go back there. And he says, you can't. Our permit is up at eight in the morning. We have to get out of here. And you can't. I said, you don't understand. I'm going to go. Now the question <laughs> is, how are we going to go about doing this? And he, he was wonderful. He's a very close friend. He's a professor of history. And he said, okay, four in the morning, five in the morning, you go. Take one Tibetan with you. When you come back, I'm going to yell and scream at you. And he said, but don't worry about it. So I take off in the dead of night and we walk the three or four hours to this temple and we go into the, to the temple keeper and say, we need you to take the clothes off the bronze. This would be like at a dinner party saying to your dinner partner, would you mind taking off all your clothes? Guy thought we were completely nuts. Convinced him to do it. And sure enough, the ring finger on his right hand was missing. And so we had discovered this bronze that's written about in history, in the history books. And sort of that's important because it both validates the biography itself, because you now have facts that you've proven up, but it also gives us, let's say, a foundational bronze against which we can compare other bronzes. Just to continue the story for a moment, I'm a business guy. So the answer is follow the money. If you want to know, it's the Willie Sutton theory of history, follow the money. So I could never understand exactly why this king was so compelled to bring Buddhism to Tibet. So in the same area where the temple was, one day we're standing up on a most magical, powerful bluff overlooking the confluence of two rivers. And there's a big monument there. It's actually a burial site. And one of the kids says to me, do you know what those pockmarks are in the landscape? And I, and this is a huge scree uh, area. I said, no. He said, guess. I said, I can't guess what are they. He said, those are our gold fields. And all of a sudden, the whole thing came together. This king did not have big population. And in those days, of course, we know real men would fight, but real men can't fight if they don't have big armies. So the question was, how was he going to establish power? How did he develop a strategy to develop power if he didn't have an army to fight? And what he did is he used his gold to import Buddhism And Buddhism happens to be a very expensive religion because you got to have bronzes and monasteries and all of that. He then renounced his throne and became the head lama. So in effect, he used the church as his strategy for power as opposed to kingship. So you can see this, this, this journey has taken us on fantastic sort of both intellectual and discovery, both intellectual discovery and physical discovery that's really added. Margot and I do this together. She's part and parcel of all of this. And it's just enriched our life enormously. You live to embrace risk in the air, on the slopes, and anywhere your determination takes you. But when it comes to the drinking water that fuels your adventures, you're not looking to take chances. With cutting-edge filtration that can target contaminants as small as a single atom, Culligan's reverse osmosis filtration systems deliver the next-level hydration you need to keep working at peak performance, whatever the day brings. 
Get started by scheduling your free water test at Culligan.com. I have to ask, Tom, whether the, the monks at the monastery were aware of what you had discovered in that bronze, you know, the missing ring finger, or did you sort of, you know, like, hey, do you realize what this is? The answer is, I believe, I've thought about that. I believe they knew because they would have to have hidden it during the Cultural Revolution. Nothing in Tibet was untouched by the Cultural Revolution. So they would have had to hidden it. And the other thing is they had a name for it that suggests they understood it was a powerfully important uh, bronze. So as you as you're going through this journey and validating or not, I guess, some of the history, are you planning on writing or have you written publications that share that knowledge with the rest of the scholarly community or are you still working on that that final output, I guess? Yeah. Sandra, here's my problem. Yeah. I have this I have this day job that gets in the way <laughs> of what's really important in life. Or maybe or maybe ten day jobs. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to how deal to... with this. I have published in magazines. A friend of mine who's a serious scholar said, Here's what you do. You publish bits and pieces in magazine articles. And then when you get so old, they don't want you anymore in the office. You can just assemble those yeah. and call it a book. So I have published some articles, but I'm not, I'm not a scholar. I'm not trained. I don't have the educational background. I don't read the language. So in that sense, our job, strangely, has been the tip of the spear. We're the ones who go out into the middle of nowhere and bring back information for the professional scholars. And that's, that's sort of been our role. And going back to one of Sandy's questions, I think we've sort of run the string. In other words, I think we've discovered 80% of what's discoverable. And so I think we were just incredibly fortunate to live during the window of time when it was still virgin territory, but you could be safe and those sorts of things. So as you've gone through this discovery and spent so much time in the region, has anything in the culture influenced you personally? I tend to be very Buddhist in thought. I find it a very elegant belief system, and you are immersed in it years, decades. It is a perfect and profound question. You're absolutely right. So I'm, I'm not religious. I don't consider myself a Buddhist. But I find, and Buddhism in some senses is a philosophy more than a religion. Yep, absolutely. And I find aspects of their philosophy have been super important to my life. So I've ended up in situations of pretty extreme stress and adversity in the business world. And in one such situation, it basically was a 10-year run of being under attack. And then in that situation, having lived in the Buddhist Himalayas for quite a long time, their view, as you know, is everything is transitory. So don't hang on for dear life. And in this case, that philosophy of being able to manipulate your attitude the one thing all of us can control is our attitude. Absolutely. We get to completely own it and nobody has any rights to it. 
And if you can make that malleable Mm -hmm. to a situation or to a some adversity, if you can begin to look at that in a certain way and have it make sense to you, all of a sudden you get up in the morning and say, you know what, this is interesting. This is a time under assault. This is going to be really interesting to see how they do it, how I do it, how we navigate it. So I actually think that that saved my health and my life and and basically gave me a really an avenue of healthy mind and taught me this agile mindset that's just been super helpful in every aspect of my life. You know, Tom, I can relate to that. I, uh, in my early 20s, I came across a, a, a reminder from Buddha that said, the source of man's misery is his desire. And that has really affected me my whole life. I've always tried to remind myself of that simple, you know, very crisp saying. Yeah, it frees you, right? It frees you to think about a situation, to deal with it, to depersonalize it, that sort of thing. And so that aspect of it has been. That's when I, when I said it's more of a tapestry that led into everything in my life, business and everything else. And, uh, I was really fun, powerful, interesting to develop the attitude, that sort of thing. So a question for you, tell us about sort of a typical journey. I know it's changed over time as the region has evolved, as you've evolved, but, but, you know, what kind of altitudes are you working at? Do you have guides? You, you talked about walking great distances. Are you still doing that? Uh, what's it feel like uh, up there? The kingdom we study straddles China, India, and, and Nepal. And when I say China, it's, it's the Tibetan part. And there you're in SUVs and you have a gaggle of watchers uh, making sure you're not going outside of the boundaries of what you're supposed to be doing. Similarly, in India, in Nepal, it's fantastic. So you basically take a plane or a helicopter to the closest strip. You get out and you walk for probably nine days to get to where we want to be. So you're walking over the Himalayas and there the answer is yes, my body is still able to do it. We went, we went in June uh, to test that very question. So there we walked over 16,000 to get into this U-shaped, it's a U-shaped Himal that points north. You go over 16,000 to get in. We went over 17,500 to get out. And you're living basically at 13,000. You live in a tent. 13,000 is where the villages are, 12, 13,000. So you'll go to a village, you're living in a tent, you interact with the people in the village, in the monastery, and you look for discoveries. And one of the techniques we found is kids. What we do is hang out with kids who are, say, 12 years old. They know everything. They know where every cave is. They know where every (laughs) single thing in the whole area is. And so they've become the tool to say, oh, wait a minute, go down the river, cross the river, go up to that cave and you'll find paintings. So we do that in the villages and then basically have to walk over another mountain in order to get to the next river valley. And then you do the same repeat. And and that's sort of our days are bounded by daylight. 
get up when the sun rises, go to bed when the sun goes down. We carry, it's a mix of local food and imported food that we carry with us. We will typically have a yak train carrying our material. It's now converted to mules. That's become one of the changes. And that's sort of, it's very healthy life where I come back in tremendous shape and three months later, everything has gone to hell and <laughs> back to my normal weight. Uh, but it's, it's, it's really, I think it's like a retreat is how I think about it. You know how there's certain people, Bill Gates goes off, said to go off for a week or a month or something and read and refresh his mind. I think that's what this does for me. I think it's like a retreat. And I had someone asking me about the spiritual part of it. And I don't think of myself as spiritual. I have a lot of friends who say that's not correct. I think what it is, is it, it's helpful in setting proportions and priorities. It right sets uh, proportions and, and priorities. And when I come back, it's a wonderful experience to, to be able to do that. Generally, we're gone for about a month. Wow, that's a long time. I, you know, when I hiked up Langtang Valley, we were hiking on a, a trail that was basically where the mule packs were going back up into the valley because there was no other way to get up there. So I'm assuming you were on some of these village to village, they were commerce trails, really. And that's how you guys would get around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, although the, the commerce is generally north south. And our inside of this valley, we're sort of constrained by the Himalayas. We're in that valley. Valley means bottom of it is 12,000 feet for that period of time. And then it takes us sort of a week and a half to get out. So would you stay in some of the, the village houses or you were definitely camping the whole time? We, we generally have camped the whole time, but there have been times when we needed to stay in a house. Uh, there was a torrential rain. We were afraid of flash floods. So we moved up into the house and are comfortable doing that. It's, it's not as clean, frankly. And so we'd rather be in the tent, but we, we will do both. You're passionate about pushing yourself to always be better. Culligan's water experts feel the same. That's why their smart reverse osmosis filtration systems do more than deliver the ultra-refreshing, pure-tasting water you deserve. Their app also lets you set drinking water goals, see water quality information, and get filter change alerts. And with cleaner, safer, great-tasting water available right from the tap, you can also feel good about all those single-use plastic bottles you're saving from landfills. So get started today by scheduling your free water test at Culligan.com. Uh, here's a question for you. Uh, you're up in some some pretty snowy, cold, glaciery parts of the world, I would think. Uh, have you seen any evidence of climate change over the last 40 years you've been doing this or more, I guess? Enormous. And you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to have data. When we went that first time in 78, we basically had to be in uh, sleeping bags between 630 and 7 at night because it was so cold. So we would have dinner in order to be able to get in. And yes, you, you know, you, you pulled the string. So the only thing that was getting pulled was your nose. <laughs> that was that. all that was exposed. <laughs> and the same, we now have been back to the same area. And basically 
you're fine if you've got a sweater or or one of these uh, down jackets, not even a thick down jacket. So my view is you're talking about significant number of degrees of climate change. The other thing we see is we frequently would use a snow bridge to get across a river. Those are completely gone. These are glaciers, so there are permanent snow bridges and the river carves a little tunnel underneath. And so you could just walk over the river that way. None of those are left. So it's, a, it's actually a bit of a frightening experience. Yeah. How, how do you feel the villages are adapting? That's changing their way of life significantly. Everything's changed in this area that we go to because there's now commerce out of China. And so all of a sudden you can get a beer, you can get YY noodles, you can get all of those things are coming down and they're now in the process of building roads. So I think, as I say, I think we hit a window that won't exist in 10 years from now. It'll, it'll be over in that way. So they're, they're modernized, they're getting cell phones, they're, they're really much more aware of the outside world than they were when we were there. Yeah, it's both good and bad, I guess, huh? Yeah. So, Tom, you, you uh, described earlier uh, one sort of hairy moment you had up there uh, in a younger day. Uh, any other sort of close calls you've had uh, during some of these adventures? Yeah, <laughs> we've had some interesting time. We had, we had one, this was on the Nepal side, that one was in Kashmir in India and not so far from the Pakistan border. There was a Maoist movement in in Nepal for maybe 10 or 15 years. And we had always assumed that it was south of the Himalayas. And so we would put, as we were traveling, we would have guards at night. We'd have one of our team just watching. Once we got over the Himalayas, we figured we were free of that. We get into the first village. And at that point, we probably had 20 porters and we had two families that were probably 10 of us, including little kids. And a guy shows up and he says, I'm a Maoist. You have to pay us $100 a person or we're going to force you to leave. And I looked at him, I said, are you crazy? I got 20 guys. How many guys you got? And he looks at me, he says, well, I only got six, but I got guns. You got guns? I said, no, we got no guns. He says, okay, you have to give me $100 a person. And I said, you don't want to do that. That's bad for your reputation. We've got older people here over 65 and you shouldn't be doing it. Bad for your reputation. Scratches his head, runs back to his headquarters, the house they were staying in. And of course, you might imagine my wife did not have the same sense of humor about this that I did. <laughs> guy, comes, guy comes back the next day, he says, okay, we're going to exclude anybody over 65, but you have to give us $100 for everybody else. I said, okay, great idea, but we have people under 12. Same thing. You got to scratch his head, <laughs> run back to his headquarters, comes back. This is like we a far finally, side cartoon. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. We, we finally, it took two days to negotiate this thing, but we finally negotiated it to a happy landing of 200 and something dollars. And interestingly, I said, you got to give me a receipt. And it turned out that they had very efficient communications well, we, we then hiked for close to a month in that area. And everywhere we would go, the Maoists in those villages knew that we had paid the price, done what we needed to do, and were quite calm about it. So we've had 
I'll give you one other that was a bit spicy. So this place we went, Dolpo in 78, it turned out that it was illegal to be there. And so we carried with us, we had 10 Tibetans. So when the Chinese went into Tibet, the Tibetans formed a guerrilla movement and they moved south of the border and that was safe haven. They'd go north of the border, shoot up the Chinese and then run south. These were called the Kampas. So we took 10 of them with us uh, during that trip in 78 when we were on this great adventure for 500 miles. But we also took one Nepali and he was sort of our, he was an ornithologist. He was sort of our insurance policy in case we got in trouble for being in a place we weren't supposed to be. So we get through this whole journey and Margot gets very sick, 104 fever. And so we stop and all of a sudden an advanced group of the army, six of them come into our camp and they said, there are 34 guys on horseback and they're here to arrest you guys. There were three of us, Margot, me and one other friend. They're here to arrest you and they're going to be here tomorrow. So Margot's got 104 fever. We break camp. We send our entire encampment out into the hills and had the ornithologist go into the tent and talk to the advance group. And they basically said, okay, we're not going to arrest you, but tomorrow morning, they're going to, they're going to be coming after you. As it happened, we were actually across the river from a group of brigands. Think of Pancho Villa style encampments. And we had made friends with them and we were going to have a big dinner. So we sent word to them, you got to get out of Dodge. The next morning at, I don't know, five in the morning, you know, where it's gray and the embers of the fire are just being put out. We put Margo on the back of a yak and we go hide behind the hill, let the main army go down below us. And then we went into a very uh, secondary road out because we had these ex-guerrillas, so they knew the turf. So we went and traveled at 16,000 feet for probably three days, maybe four days, a really long valley in order to escape the, the police. And then we got to the legal side, Sandra, near where you were in the Kaligandaki, and then, and then it was legal. So yeah, we've had, in our younger days, uh, we had a few interesting experiences. Although I'll tell you, in the business world, to me, the scarce resource is not IQ, it's judgment. Yeah. And I've always tried to figure out how do you train for judgment? What are the correlations for judgment? And my hypothesis, I have no idea if it's accurate or not, is that experience is the breeding ground for judgment. And I always tell my kids, if you can just have zillions of experiences, that's going to improve your judgment. And I don't know whether this is a theory of convenience or accurate, but I think all of these experiences are really about life, not about just the Himalayan experience. Yeah, I'd say it sounds like a little chutzpah went a long way on some of those trips. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I sort of have a saving that um, uh, incredibly bright adults will work unbelievably long hours perfecting fundamentally flawed concepts. 
And that speaks to the judgment <laughs> that you're talking about where, you know, unless you've lived out there and seen how things can be done uh, and you've done that in spades, uh, it's a, it's, it's a remarkable juxtaposition of business and adventure that really has helped you, I think. Uh, so, you know, this is a family business, right? Yep. Your son, David, uh, got his PhD from Oxford following in the, in the footsteps. How did that uh, passion evolve? So David is, we have three boys. He's the youngest of the three. We had a house in Kathmandu for probably 20 years and we would take the kids there for Christmas. And then we began to take them on treks with us. And David, from the age of five, was always the one that it, the, the monks and the lamas and the monasteries were like a magnet for him. He was always the kid who loved it. And he began, as Margot and I would go on these, on these journeys or expeditions, he was always the one who said, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go. And the others would say, this is stupid stuff. I'm, you know, I want to hang with my friends. So David grew up with it. And that sort of became his journey and sort of shocks me because it's wonderful in the sense that 11th century Buddhist history is super important to about 14 people in the entire world. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, come on, and, more than that. Uh, okay, we might expand it to 23. I think that's about it. So what's fun is, David, Margot, and I can spend hours talking about, do you think this happened in the year 1042 or was it really in 1007? And for three hours, we could talk about this arcane stuff. And so that's ended up, he's now sort of, he's a serious scholar and he has, he has the, the sort of personality of a scholar. And he's now sort of more of the senior person of, of our team of three now, because he actually he knows what he's talking about and he can make references to literature and this sort of thing. So maybe he's the one who puts all this together instead of you. <laughs> so he's the person who can write it, write it all up. And exactly. Exactly. I'm trying to outsource, you know, dele <laughs> delegate. Well, you have apparently a, a large collection of ancient Tibetan art up there in Chicago with you. So do you use any of that for outreach or use that as a way to teach people about the history and culture of the area? So if you come over to our house, I can give you a really interesting tour, historical tour of, of what happened from about the second or third century AD all the way through about the 13th or 14th century on a north-south axis, India, Nepal, Tibet, as well as an east-west axis along the Silk Road. And so for Margo and I, we live in the midst of this history and beauty. And I can't tell you how many times we sort of look at each other and say, did we end up in this incredibly wonderful situation because we, we, this, this intersection of collecting our researching history, adventure, discovery, all of that has just been super way to, share something in our in our marriage and now we have a kid who also shares it with us yeah that's so amazing i could talk to you for hours about this and by the way if you ever need a volunteer for one of your trips i'm all over that you're ready to go i love that part of the world and 
you know, we talked earlier about the spiritual piece, but I went to that Annapurna base camp, you know, standing in that bowl of those mountains and just circling. I was overwhelmed by the beauty of the area. And the people that I met over there were spectacular and really super nice. So I'm I'm all I'm all in with you on your next trip. We will we will sign you up, Sandy. Uh, you only fl- you only fly over these places. You yeah. no, I, I, you're not into the walking mode. <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'm I actually take a group hiking in the Rocky Mountains every year, backpacking for, oh, yeah. for four days. Yeah. But, but I was I was reflecting that we camp at twelve thousand feet. You're probably camping a little bit higher than that uh, in the Himalayas. Sometimes, yeah, yep. yeah. yeah. Well, uh, Tom, this has been a fantastic discussion. I think we could just go on forever on this because it's so interesting. And and I have actually visited your home and seen some of this remarkable work you have. It's fascinating, although I, I never have had the personal tour. So I look forward to that. All right. You're both welcome. But thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. It's really been a, a cool addition to our cataloging people who take and manage risk. And, and you're so thoughtful in how you express how that's influenced your life. So thanks very much. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Terrific. Thanks for having me, guys. That was Tom Pritzker, the chairman of the Pritzker Organization and of Hyatt Hotels and a recognized expert on Western Himalayan history and culture. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Thanks again to Culligan Water for sponsoring this episode. Get the superior water you deserve. Learn more at Culligan.com. And check us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with Tom on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone.